0: Today is November 11th, 2022, eleven eleven. The United States had their midterm elections earlier this week, and today is Veterans Day, a federal holiday in the United States observed annually for honoring military veterans of the United States Armed Forces. This time brings up a great deal for me. My father is a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps and Navy and is also a rabbi. As both a chaplain and a rabbi, and with a strong sense of country and duty, he strives to help individuals be their most ethical, humane selves, all while holding space for those whose hearts are heavy. There has been much heaviness in the Jewish community recently, as more and more horrible anti-Semitic acts continue to grow in number. The Anti-Defamation League, which tracks anti-Semitic behavior nationwide, found 2,717 incidents in 2021. That's a 34% rise from the year before, and averages out to more than seven anti-Semitic incidents per day. In the past few weeks, several anti-Semitic comments from public figures have sparked even greater concern about the real-world implications of these statements and have left me feeling anxious for myself and those I care about around me. I teach students at a synagogue, passing police protection as I enter and leave the building. I prepare every week to help my students process current events as they are facing anti-Semitism in a way I never did growing up, in their schools, with their peers, online. The prejudice, stereotypes, and anti-Semitism has always been there, But now, instead of existing behind a mask, it's out in the open in very public ways. For me, this isn't happening far away. It hits quite close. Part of my love of trees and nature comes from Judaism and my Jewish background, where there's a great deal of admiration and reverence for trees. In fact, our most precious book, the Torah, is called Eitz Chaim, or The Tree of Life. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, and the Jewish community reads a portion of it every week in synagogue. It's what we learn from and pray from. It's the fundamental book of our people. This name for these teachings, which have always been so joyful, is now one that is linked to the horrible attack on the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh that happened four years ago. 11 people were killed and several injured on that terrible day. The killer's motivation was that the synagogue supported a nonprofit organization which was providing humanitarian aid to support refugees on the Mexican border. It is known as one of the largest attacks of anti-Semitism on American soil. So, what do we do about it? Obviously, one cannot simply solve anti-Semitism. For me, it is finding a way to reach out with love to my community, be it the Jewish community, friends, family, or artists, or anyone in need. This also means putting more love and compassion into my work because, as a storyteller, I have the power to weave an idea of the future Part of my work as a storyteller is to share the stories of my community, our beliefs, our practices, our heritage, our love of trees. This is both to celebrate who we are and to build a bridge in connection with others. I always tell my students that once you know a person's name, it's much harder to hate them. They are a real person. They are no longer the other a great unknown. Stories help us all envision one another's lives so that we can engage with compassion and perhaps even a sense of familiarity instead of trepidation and suspicion. We have decided to revisit our episode on the Liberty Tree that we released almost a year ago, as we think its themes are as fitting today, maybe even more so, as they were at that particular time we are still grappling with the concepts of liberty and the cycles of intolerance and violence that seem to repeat throughout history. It is long overdue for these vicious acts and behaviors to end, and we believe that by looking back, we can begin to find a way forward to a world that respects the liberties of all religions, belief systems, ethnicities, creeds, sexualities, ages, abilities, and all aspects of our human lives and those of our planet. These are liberties that were hard won by the very veterans that we honor today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tree Speech Today. We are still processing the horrible events which occurred at the U.S. Capitol this past January 6th. The mayhem, the violence, the passionate rebellion in the name of personal freedom. This is not the first time our country has resorted to violence in the name of liberty. In fact, far from it. I'm Dory Robinson, and this is Tree Speech, a podcast where we get to know one another and ourselves, one tree at a time. Today, that tree happens to be one that was chopped down almost 250 years ago, but whose legacy and story have been told and retold in a myriad of ways, depending on who is doing the telling. This podcast was recorded on Sunday, November 21st, 2021, the week of Thanksgiving. Growing up in Massachusetts, I learned at an early age, and was taught, to have a great deal of pride in relation to this state being the birthplace of our country. First, being the landing spot for the Mayflower Pilgrims in 1620, first Provincetown, and then later at Plymouth Rock, and later for being the home of the patriotic rebels who started the American Revolution in Boston. From throwing tea into Boston Harbor to famous midnight rides, our Massachusetts identity is deeply tied to our history of being fighters for liberty. Liberty is what we're examining today through the lens of a tree that once stood on Boston Common. Boston Common is the oldest public park in America, dating back to 1634. As it stands today, picture lush gardens, winter ice skating, and summer swan boats on beautiful ponds. However, its origins are not nearly as serene. What began as common land purchased by the Puritans to graze livestock quickly evolved into a site for Puritan punishment for any number of crimes, including blasphemy or drunkenness. Instead of a carousel or a softball field, there was a whipping post. Criminals, which at the time ranged from murderers to pirates to witches or simply a person of varying religious beliefs, were hung there. Eventually, the Common evolved farther into a place of gathering and protest. In 1765, the Boston Common had a new rallying point for the colonial resistance to British rule, an elm called the Liberty Tree. As I considered this history and its proximity to a tree, I wondered, what exactly happened at the Liberty Tree? Why was it a rallying site? And why the name Liberty Tree? What exactly did liberty mean then? And what does it mean today? As is often the case, the lore varies from the actual history. To help us parcel out both, we first spoke with Mark Linehan. A distinguished actor, singer, dancer, and educator, Mark is also an avid historian who has led tours throughout the Boston area, including the iconic Freedom Trail, 2.5 miles which covers 16 nationally significant historic sites including a unique collection of museums, churches, meeting houses, burying grounds, parks, historic markers, a harbor, and a ship that tell the story of the American Revolution and beyond. Before we begin, a few terms you may or may not remember from your American history studies to bring you up to speed. Mark will refer to Loyalists, meaning those who were loyal to the British crown. You may have also heard the term Tory. For perspective, Loyalists constituted about one-third of the population of the American colonies during the Revolution. The American revolutionaries called themselves the Patriots, but were also known as the Rebels, depending on who was speaking. Now, the word loyal will also be used for the Patriots when Mark mentions the Loyal Nine nine American patriots from Boston who met in secret to plan protests against the Stamp Act of 1765. Mostly middle-class businessmen, this later evolved into a larger group called Sons of Liberty. And now, our interview with historian and performer, Mark Linehan. So Mark, tell us what is the Liberty Tree of Boston Common?
1: The Liberty Tree of Boston Common, it is a legendary tree for two reasons. Number one, it is a central figure in the early lead up to the American Revolution. It was a really important landmark, especially in the 1760s. But it's also legendary because it was cut down at some point during the British occupation of 75 to 76. So it became this an arboral martyr of some sort. I don't know what the word is. Arboreal? I don't know what the word is. But it became this like weird lost figure of the American Revolution.
0: So how, how do you think the Liberty Tree became the Liberty Tree? How do you think it became the symbol?
1: The Liberty Tree likes so many things with the American Revolution and also just so many aspects of history you'll find different sources that say different things. And it doesn't matter what the historical event is, but especially in Boston, especially with the American Revolution, two people will give wildly different accounts as to where and what something is. So the Liberty Tree in particular it's like a lot of other things too. Where was the Liberty tree? We have a general understanding as to where it was. The plaque for it is in this like little square. That's I literally almost just said it's across from a Dunkin Donuts, which is a really specific way to describe a landmark in Boston, Massachusetts, <laughs> but it wasn't made part of the Freedom Trail because there's also nothing to see there. They cut it down 250 years ago. So it's not much of a tourist attraction to say, here's a plaque where one stood a tree. Which, by the way, that's not the only plaque in downtown Boston that says here once stood a tree. You know, where there's also the Great Elm uh, on the Boston Common, which is a way more depressing subject for a tree podcast. (laughs) So (laughs) here's where everyone died. Huzzah, Great Elm. So, (laughs) (laughs) The most critical part about understanding where the Liberty Tree was is understanding what Boston used to look like. Boston used to be a peninsula with a really, really narrow land route to the south. It was it was definitely a landmark in and out of Boston, but it wasn't at the neck because that would have been a pretty poor meeting spot. And so the Liberty Tree is very much like on what would have been considered the outskirts of town. And that's why it made a convenient meeting place because it was a spot on the common land that a lot of people could gather. It was near the exit slash entrance to Boston. With things like this, oftentimes the propaganda becomes true very, very quickly, not just with trees, but with people as well, where this their symbolism or their symbology outweighs who they really were like very, very quickly. So with the Liberty Tree, like very quickly, like became this legendary thing. And then they cut it down and it quickly got forgotten history.
0: I think obviously what we learn as children, what we learn in our history books is very like polished but then when you hear how how things were handled and one of the things if i'm not mistaken about the liberty tree was that an effigy was hung on it
1: oh yeah oh no the liberty tree saw some horrible violence i feel like the effigy might have been the first time it was used the way we think of the liberty tree in boston so the thing that we have to remember was that boston is a really weird city of contradictions At the time in the 1760s, we were a violent city. We loved mobs. We loved riots. We were big fans of expressing our political grievances by just showing up at someone's house and tearing it down. We loved destroying property, which is why when a lot of people were horrified by the Boston Tea Party in December of 73, it was actually part of a very consistent pattern where it's like, we're upset about something. We're going to destroy your stuff. We had been doing that for almost 10 years.
0: Okay, so the Liberty Tree became the Liberty Tree when the first effigy happened, and that was around...
1: So that was, so the effigy was August 14th, 1765. So, and the effigy was of Andrew Oliver. The Oliver family is a very prominent pro crown loyalist, pro government family. So Andrew Oliver had signed on to be one of these agents to collect the Stamp Act, to collect the tax. So on August 14th, 1765, the Sons of Liberty, or as they're more commonly known in the 1760s, the Loyal Nine, these band of Looney Tunes, it's so tough because one of the things we forget about historical figures is that they are just as complicated as we are today, and their relationships are just as complex as the ones we have today. You know, when we talk about the Sons of Liberty, it's often just easier to say Sam Adams is the head of the Sons of Liberty. That's not entirely accurate. He's the one with political savvy, and he's the one who gets stuff done. It wasn't a real hierarchy, it was much more decentralized, and there are some very shadowy figures and some very dangerous figures who basically get swept out of the history books because we want to keep the statesman. Because as is common with many revolutions, you need someone to make an omelet. You need to break a few eggs. And then if it's successful, you then get rid of the people that you use to break the eggs because you want to look more statesmanlike. So we kept Sam Adams, but we don't learn about Ebenezer McIntosh. So Ebenezer McIntosh is this guy who is basically the head of what was called the South End Gang. One year, I think it was possibly 1764... This guy, he organized the South End gang and they kicked the snot out of the North End gang, which would have included Paul Revere, by the way. Then Sam Adams sees this and he says, that's potential. So Sam Adams literally looks at this guy and he's like, hmm. I think we should hire him. And Ebenezer McIntosh basically becomes the hired muscle. He was the Luca Brazzi of the Sons of Liberty, you know. He's kind of the guy who organizes this first protest on August 14th, 1765, in which they hang Andrew Oliver's effigy. And then I believe they transport it to a second location and then set it on fire. So this scares the crap out of Andrew Oliver. He immediately resigns as stamp tax collector. He's like, oh, heck no. And from then on, basically no one will take the job. So they can't collect the stamp tax if no one physically takes the money. But Ebenezer Macintosh gets carried away. Oh, they also destroy like Andrew Oliver's warehouse. They take a battering ram. They destroy a bunch of his property. So Ebenezer Macintosh is like, that went really well, guys. We should do that again. 12 days later on August 26th, Ebenezer Macintosh leads another mob to Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson's house in the north end. About a thousand people surround Hutchinson's house and they pull it down. They literally just they and they steal every single item from the house. And so that August 14th to August 26th, that's considered the Stamp Act riots. Is that two-week period? The irony being, Thomas Hutchinson was actually against the Stamp Act. He thought it was a terrible idea. He thought it was bad policy. And he had actually successfully given arguments to Parliament, which led them to repeal it. So the Stamp Act was repealed in less than six months. When the British found out how upset we were, they immediately got rid of it. But that just taught us that what we had done had worked. It wasn't, you know, Hutchinson. It was obviously Ebenezer Macintosh breaking some windows. That was what made it successful. That's really kind of the Liberty Trees debut is that Andrew Oliver effigy. That's the beginning of the Stamp Act riots. And then it just becomes a very popular meeting fired up place like that becomes like the landmark where you got all pumped up for whatever you were doing that day and it saw continued violence after that the loyalist john malcolm i think is the worst one to come out of the liberty tree so john malcolm was tarred and feathered at the liberty tree
0: here's the thing yeah it's sort of like what you said before it was incredibly radical it was incredibly violent Tarring and feathering. And we just say it just so nonchalantly. Oh, yes, he was tarred and feathered. But that happened.
1: Tarring and feathering. When you took the tar off, it took your skin with you. So John Malcolm is tarred and feathered. But like before this, we have incidents of there was one incident where uh, a merchant was put in a cart on the floor of a cart. And then the horse was made to go really quickly through the streets of Boston because there's no suspension in a cart. If you're in a wooden cart and you don't have any padding under you, it's a rough ride. You could literally have your bones broken, like going really fast in the streets of Boston. So although this, the story I read once was actually that the women of Boston did that to this guy because he wouldn't sell them coffee or something. There's some, there's some story I've like that. Read it that sounds,
0: I read that one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It sounds ludicrous, but I'm like,
0: coffee. listen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The women of Boston was like, where's my donkeys? And they just like took him through the streets of Boston, and, like killed him using cobblestones. But <laughs> I mean, everyone learns about the Boston Master and the Boston Tea Party, but if you go a layer below that, you get Christopher Sider's Stamp Act, Townsend Act, and John Malcolm is one of those figures.
0: It's my understanding that when the Liberty Tree of Boston Common, when it became the symbol that we know it to be, other Liberty Trees popped up around America. Oh, yeah.
1: This all goes back to the genius of Sam Adams. So Sam Adams, he fails in the private sector but he really is an expert politician. Uh, not, he's not necessarily remembered as a great symbol of governance. Like his talent was he was the dogged political genius. And so w- what he did in the beginning is that, so the two things that are called liberty in Boston all the time are the Liberty Tree and the Cradle of Liberty, which is Faneuil Hall. Sam Adams used both of them to achieve his purposes. It's so important to hold them equally that the Sons of Liberty were both brilliant politically but also used violence to achieve their political objectives. And so Sam Adams does both these things. Faneuil Hall is the cradle of liberty. So that's where town meeting was held. The reason why that was so important is cuz Boston is the third largest city in America at the time. And so whatever Boston town meeting decides, that's basically what Massachusetts is probably going to do, and Massachusetts at this point includes Maine and New Hampshire only has like 30 people in it. So like whatever Boston town meeting decides is what Massachusetts is probably going to do, which means that's probably what New England is going to do. So if you are the guy in charge of whipping votes and pulling strings and making deals in the back room at Faneuil Hall, you have an enormous amount of power. And Sam Adams in particular like Sam Adams is the most radical guy in North America. So these two symbols, the cradle of liberty and the liberty tree, they're both used by Sam Adams. But when he says liberty, other people are talking about their British liberties because that's the other thing to keep in mind. Britain is the freest country on earth. Why would any British subject need more freedom? There is literally no such thing as more freedom than what the British have. But when Sam Adams, when he's using these two things that we call liberty, it's because in his mind, it's liberty away from Britain. He's getting out of Dodge. He wants to have his own country. This happens with the Boston Tea Party. This happens with the Liberty Tree. Boston will do something and copycats will follow our lead down the coast. And what's so fascinating to watch is many of what we now call founding fathers in other cities would copy us immediately. Even when you whether you're talking about Liberty Trees, whether you're talking about effigies, whether you're talking about Boston Tea Parties if you put all the dates on a map of when other cities did their thing, you can see it's whenever the post showed up and said, Hey, let me tell you what just happened in Boston. And everyone would listen and go, let's do that. And they would do it immediately. So like, Boston Tea Party was immediately followed by tea parties all the way down the coast. And it goes right in order. Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Virginia, all the way down to Georgia. Like they just follow Boston's lead.
0: Were there as many violent acts that you know of with the other Liberty Trees? Or were they just truly just symbols to say,
1: (laughs) we like our liberties? I can say with absolute confidence that effigies were a huge thing everywhere that's one of the more interesting aspects of the American Revolution is people tend to think of us as a bunch of working class farmers who are in the middle of something. And someone said, go fight a war. And they were like, all right, I'll finish plowing my field later. And then they just went out and beat the British Army. And then they just picked up the plow right back where they started. The interesting thing about the American Revolution is that it is unlike other revolutions around the world in which it was a revolution of the 1%. And that's because... The status quo of America was that of an independent nation. Britain ignored us for 150 years. Britain was more than happy to send their wretched refuse to America, you know, to to use a more modern term from a wonderful poem. They were more than happy to get rid of the English they didn't want and be like, go spread the glory of the empire, make sure that the French don't take Ohio and whatever. But then when we became enormously successful and suddenly you have men with titles with less money than Americans... Then suddenly the British are like, hey, okay, we need to tap that well. Like, they couldn't resist a giant pot of money. Because, I mean, the Stamp Act, it's the first time in 150 years that Englishmen in North America had paid English tax. That had never happened before.
0: It's really Mm -hmm. hard to look back on our history. And especially you and I are both Massachusetts humans Mm -hmm. and have this pride that the, you know, the revolution started here. And then to hear and learn what that really means. Mm -hmm. And what that really looks like, and the violence and the privilege and all of that sort of makes me think about the symbols that are associated with revolution or associated with people taking action.
1: Oh, absolutely. A symbol is anything you want it to be. That's the power of symbolism. You get you get enough people screaming about it, and anything can become anything. But it's very interesting because the Liberty Tree particularly works as a symbol of the way that humans our first instinct is always to walk away or to look away from the history we don't like. It's not just a matter of digging up lost history. It's also like, what are our priorities? What what do we actually want to learn? And the reason why the Liberty Tree is really interesting about that is because, again, it's cut down for firewood in oh, 75. Oh, I thought it
0: was cut down by like the British. Oh, it was.
1: It was cut down during the siege. I've seen different accounts as to whether or not the British were like, ha ha, we have cut down your Liberty Tree. Yeah, I've read like it was cut down because it was the Liberty Tree. I've heard it was cut down because during the siege of Boston, the city's completely cut off and it's a freezing cold winter and they have no wood. Pretty much no tree survived the siege of Boston. So I'm sure it was cut down and it was used for firewood, whether it was out of desperation or whether it's, I mean, they're not stupid. I'm sure they cut down the Liberty Tree because it was the Liberty Tree. It is interesting that the Liberty Tree really was a focal point for the excesses of the Sons of Liberty that we want to forget. And we very successfully forgot them. Even when you look at making the Liberty Tree part of the Freedom Trail, there wasn't a ton of interest in it. But the other thing is, if the Liberty Tree was on the Freedom Trail, it would be the beginning of the Freedom Trail. You would start the Freedom Trail about the glories of Boston and the glories of America with the location where all this violence took place. And we were not alone in this, where humans want to forget the worst things they did. We struggle with facing our history, and the Liberty Tree is a really potent symbol of that. The Liberty Tree, Faneuil Hall is the symbol of stars and stripes forever and a bunch of men standing around with their hands in their coats being like, we just passed a law and we are awesome and freedom. That's Faneuil Hall. But the Liberty Tree, I mean, that's the ugly part of the American Revolution. And the British did Massachusetts a huge favor by cutting it down. Because Massachusetts, like anywhere in the country, has got tons of horrible problematic history and two of the most potent symbols of how messed up we were and what sins we've committed are the Liberty Tree and the Great Elm Tree? Both of them have plaques. The Great Elm Tree does not say what it was used for. And the Liberty Tree is just like, Liberty!
0: And that's what I always wonder is if the tree still existed or if it was the beginning of the Freedom Trail. I just lament the kind of conversations we would be having instead of thinking we were Americans, we did everything perfectly. Because when you're protesting, there's a level of extremism to it. Like, what are we protesting? What are we saying we're fighting for?
1: The thing that gives me hope, there have been times where in the past, we have been willing to reassess. We've been willing to say, what did we do? And what do we do to change and move forward? We've also been having like a larger conversation in this country about like, do we memorialize who gets a statue, you know, things like that. One thing I find most interesting is that outside the Massachusetts State House, the original State House, the brick, that was finished in 1798. And the two wings of the State House, the marble wings, were finished in 1917. And in front of each wing are women who we persecuted and in one case banished and in the other case murdered, strictly because we were so religiously intolerant. We put them right out front, like they flank the State House. There's something about that that gives me hope. The presence of those women force us to face our history. So one's Anne Hutchinson, and the other one is Mary Dyer, who is a Quaker woman, and she was hanged from the Elm tree. So there have been times in past generations where there have been people willing to do some element of the work and willing to say, we screwed up, and we need to remember that we screwed up. And we definitely still have work to do, but there are glimmers of hope. These are actually warnings. These are beacons telling us what not to do.
0: To close, I really like what you're saying about, you know, when you're in this space, there's a sense of accountability, which sometimes we notice and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we need that symbol right in our face. And sometimes, well, hopefully we seek it out whether the symbol is there or not.
1: The accountability and the search for the truth. I find that to be an act of patriotism. The Constitution tells us that the point of it is to form a more perfect union. The idea is that we're never going to be perfect. It's working towards that perfection that you know you're never going to reach and that the next generation is going to have to do more work on top of what you're doing, but you still have to do your own work. We have to do the work in order to hand it off to the next generation as well. I find it to be a patriotic duty to face our history and to look this up. And we find out in the end that they were all human beings.
0: I am grateful that you are one of the humans who do that examination thoroughly, that you care about it. And I'm so happy that you're one of the people who teach it. Thank you so much for giving such a rich, deep dive into history of Boston tree speechers. If you're out there and you've never done the Freedom Trail, I cannot recommend it highly enough. So Mark, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Dory. It was a ton of fun.
0: Mark's insight was incredibly revealing to me, especially the fact that the rebellion was instigated by, and most benefited, the very wealthiest people of the time. This was not what I typically imagine when I think of a revolution. And yet, Mark's closing thoughts redirected my energy in a more hopeful direction when he highlighted the memorials for the two wronged women by the state capitol who remind us about our past and urge us to be accountable for our actions both then and moving forward. Mark gave us rich details about the Liberty Tree's past, and I was curious about how its story continued and evolved over time, and what does it symbolize today? We were fortunate to speak with historian Maddie Webster, a Boston University PhD student in the American and New England studies program. Speaking with Maddie was another refreshing and informative experience. The sheer volume of knowledge she has about Boston history was just the beginning. Let's listen. Well, first, I'm going to say, Maddie, it is a pleasure to speak with you and thank you for carving out time to speak with us today.
2: Of course, I'm really happy to be here. Excited to talk about my favorite tree. So thank you, Dory. From what we've learned about you, you do some
0: really fascinating research and you combine a lot of really interesting things in your work. Can you tell us a bit about your field of study and how that intersects with the Liberty Tree?
2: Yes, thank you. Um, So first of all, I'm an American Studies program. So uh, American Studies is the interdisciplinary study of American culture. I'm interested mostly in in Boston history. So at least I have this place focus, but I have studied just the craziest things. Um, I mostly study memory um, in the built environment. But you know, that can take the form of memorials, it can take the form of Uh, written history about the built environment. But what I've led myself to, I've been in this program for five years, is studying historic preservation. And that's the study of people caring about places and wanting to keep that physical object that um, is imbued with the past in the present. So how is the Liberty Tree
0: memorialized today?
2: Liberty Tree is now memorialized with like plaques, um, and not not just plaques in Boston, but I was up in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, and there was a plaque there memorializing Boston's Liberty Tree. So now, I mean, it's memorialized in many different ways. In the mid 19th century, there was a stump that people called the Liberty Stump, but it was covered up by another building on the site, and so in that moment, it wasn't memorialized. At all. Now, because of this moment where this one wealthy developer realized that he now owned this pretty historic property, he was the one who kind of decided we're going to dig this thing up um, and we're going to rebuild the Liberty Tree and project to all passers by Um, that this was the spot where this historic moment happened. Um, But if it wasn't for him, I mean, would there be any Liberty Tree memorials or panels or would anyone really know about the Liberty Tree in Boston today? It's possible it would have just completely faded into obscurity.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what is the narrative of the Liberty Tree been from there Mm -hmm. through the memorial and especially with your opinions? (laughs) Yes.
2: And so the Liberty Tree became this place, this rallying ground where all of the fervor of Bostonians um, sort of came to head like right at this tree. And it was a symbol of like violent protest. So it's kind of interesting that in 1849, when this businessman, David Sears, buys this property and realizes what he has, the, the site of where the Liberty Tree was, it's interesting that then this memorial panel he like has installed into the facade of his building, commemorating this tree, why does it then have the words law and order engraved into the roots of this memorial panel? That does not make any sense. So did Sears know that it was the site of the Liberty Tree before he purchased it,
0: or did he find out after the fact?
2: He had a lot of properties. His father was a merchant and real estate developer as well. And so it's very possible that he purchased this property and then realized what he had. And I kind of I'm making the case that it was a a lucrative spot at the corner of Washington and Essex, a thriving commercial hub um, in downtown Boston. And he really was out to make money. And it happened to be a a really good pulpit to express his ideology by wielding this, this usable past
0: I'm also from Massachusetts and was raised much like everyone here in Massachusetts to absolutely love every single Minuteman and the American Revolution, all those things, and learning that the Liberty Tree was actually a place of deep violence. How are you sorting this through in your brain, the idea that it's called the Liberty Tree and that there's a lot of pride around the Sons of Liberty and the Loyal Nine, Mm
2: -hmm. even
0: though all these good words these positive words with the fact that there were an enormous amount of violent acts that happened there?
2: Yes. Oh my gosh. That's a wonderful question. And I think people have been struggling with figuring out what liberty means, um, what the liberty means, different things for different people. And in the mid 19th century, when David Sears is, is deciding whether to keep this past erased like it was already kind of erased and he didn't have to revive the story of this tree i think he kind of had to think about for himself what liberty meant and for him liberty meant no taxation without representation liberty was really tied to one's um rights one's property rights specifically and so for him when he's looking at these violent crowd actions he's he's not in favor of that you know he's not he He really wants to reframe this memory to be tied to liberty as respect for one's personal freedoms, particularly, you know, freedom to do business and to not have working class men potentially put your business prospects at harm. Property was really important for him. That's where he made all of his money. Liberty was really for the people who deserved it and who bided by the law and those those you know rabble rousers, those middling sorts, as they called them, those you know journeymen artisans who were um, part of that that mob, or at least you know he, he would have called them a mob crowd of crowd of uh, patriots. He was not interested in their liberty to destroy whatever property in order to get more liberties. If that makes sense,
0: that is the big question for me that I'm grappling with: who creates the narrative of a symbol? such as the Liberty Tree, who gets to reframe it and where does the narrative go from here? So you've mentioned um, the panel, can you tell us a little bit more about the memorial and about how the narrative stands right now?
2: Yes, and um, so this panel, it's really beautiful. It's been restored, it has a fresh coat of paint, but it, it pretty much is It's the same as it was back when he had it carved of what he thought the Liberty Tree looked like. And he had these ship carvers, Windsor and Brother, he had them uh, carved carve this pretty impressive tree. So the, the whole panel is five feet wide by eight feet tall. And it's like real, it's like really detailed. It's a it's a large memorial panel in base relief. The etchings creating the bark of the tree are also really detailed. It's like just really interesting that this tree that was the site of such violence has now been portrayed as this beautiful, stately elm. And I was trying to figure out where did the inspiration for this particular visualization come from? Because it wasn't standing anymore in 1849 when Sears commissioned this panel, right? And he could have just taken like, any elm tree. I'm pretty sure he picked like a very specific depiction of the Liberty Tree to have represented um, because he must have, you know, told the Windsor and Brother Carvers, like, I want it to look this way. He seemed to really care about this panel. So no matter what, the Liberty Tree is always depicted as having these low hanging branches to hang these effigies from. That's kind of what it was use for and then when you look at this carving of the tree you can see that the lowest hanging branches are all truncated which is so interesting that you parse out when the tree
0: is engaged with in a very physical manner versus mm-hmm. how we remember it in this stately grand elegant stoic again it, it you know everything comes back to who is telling the narrative of the tree and how do they change that narrative
2: yes it, and it's like, we know that, right? So I think part of your question was, what is the interpretation of Liberty Tree now? It's the last like at least 20, 30 years where scholars and public historians have really been looking at memory, you know, that's been like a, a really important theme um, in scholarship is thinking about not events themselves necessarily, but how these events have been remembered, re-remembered, reframed, redeveloped. So I think now people really like the average um, Bostonian is aware of how like the people who were involved with the Revolutionary War and how radical it truly was. Sears was not, (laughs) not at all interested in that memory of the war because, you know, to say that working people had such an instrumental role in how the country was formed would not do well for an America that in the mid-19th century was increasingly stratified by class and in the 1830s. There are many working men's movements that formed and, you know, died down a bit, but he was very much aware that America had a, a class issue and that it was going to come to a boiling point. And he really wanted to subdue that history to try to remind people, like, you shouldn't get credit for that, you know, these middling sorts. Um, who were getting pretty angry when it was clear that their ability to rise up through the ranks or to make a decent living um, was becoming increasingly unrealistic. So (laughs) to write these people out of history and to reframe this like beloved tree and that history was a really important thing for someone who's at the top of the class hierarchy in in Boston.
0: Yes, I'm sure it was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, very much using the muscle and the sweat of the brow of the people in the 1700s and then sweeping that nicely under the carpet. If Sears sort of reframed the narrative of the Liberty tree, where do you think the narrative of the Liberty tree goes from here? what do What do you think we do with it today and moving forward?
2: The interesting thing about this panel and I think preservation in general, you know anyone can, who has the the capital, the power to put up a memorial to preserve a site and redevelop this narrative. They can do that, right? But the cool thing is that this panel like was covered up by signage in the late 19th century. You know, this this building, it had bookstores in it. It had like a medical school in it. It had, you know, a department store in it. And the, that department store had signage that just completely covered the panel. And then what I really love about this is that in the, the 1970s, this area of Boston's called the Combat Zone. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that. And so, you know, all those like adult entertainment menus that were in Scully Square got pushed over to this part of Boston. It's like you can do all you can as a property owner from the mid 19th century to try to project your ideology out into the public sphere, but people are going to do what they want and times change. So with preservation, unless you have someone like a, f- a thread through history of, P- of Stuarts continuously interested in not just like maintaining their historic property, but also like interpreting it, doing like all sorts of programming around it. It just, it's kind of like a nice ending to the, well, not quite an ending, but at least a nice chapter of this David Sears Liberty tree block story that life happens <laughs> and, someone as powerful as David Sears will have a lasting legacy, right? But at the same time, it's people can choose whether or not to listen to it, especially when it's in the form of this memorial panel. And I think that's actually one thing that the story about uh, Sears shows is that people rewrite history, rewrite memory all the time. So it's really important, I think, to continue to think about facts and history, not just memory, right? So like, objective is as objective, all history is biased, but anyway, objective history, and to not let people kind of seize upon these symbols of revolution, of protest, and rewrite it in a way that is not factually correct.
0: (laughs) Something you said earlier, that a symbol such as the Liberty Tree really needs a steward to help with the through line and programs and all that sort of stuff. And you're very much a steward of history and we really appreciate that. Well, Maddie, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you again for taking time to speak with us today. And thank you for all the work you're doing in terms of memory, preservation, historical thought, and sort of challenging narratives and how history in the past, how they are used. So thank you for being with us.
2: Of course. Thank you, Jory, for having me. I really enjoyed talking about this project. <laughs> oh my gosh,
0: with pleasure. David Sears had the means to rewrite the Liberty Tree's narrative. This is not the only way the Liberty Tree has been reimagined. In 1775, Thomas Paine, best known for writing Common Sense, wrote a popular song called The Liberty Tree in which he imagines liberty as a plant given by a goddess of liberty to the Americans to care for. But soon the tyrannical powers of the world attempt to destroy the tree, and the citizens must unite to defend it. A modern-day example lies within the Magic Kingdom, where there is a tree called the Liberty Tree. Adjacent to the tree is Liberty Tree Tavern, where, according to the website, you can pay tribute to our founding fathers as you dine at this stately colonial-style inn, serving traditional New England fare with names like the Patriot's Platter and Declaration Salad. The idea of revolution is there, without delving into what revolution means. How can one tree be so important that it inspires stories, landmarks, plaques, and poems? The tree itself was not an active participant. Rather, he witnessed the history that unfolded around him and then was chopped down, leaving his story and interpretation up to whomever chooses to tell it. It is a fascinating coincidence that, of all trees, the Liberty Tree is an elm, In French folklore, the elm was considered the tree of justice. Underneath its branches, judges reflected and received inspiration for how they would rule. According to Greek mythology, the elm tree also serves as a great liberator, freeing us from our past old beliefs and limitations, all of which help us to open our hearts and expand our consciousness into something greater than ourselves. So... How do we envision liberty as we move forward? For this, we asked activist and applied theater practitioner Catherine Hannah Schrock to share her ideas about liberty. Catherine is the co-founder and director of Imagine Brave Spaces, a San Diego-based theater company that leverages the tools of storytelling and theater to enhance community culture. Catherine is a true visionary. Her words are a call to action. A reminder that liberty is not a stagnant concept found only in the past. Rather, it is one that we continually shape through our actions. Even more, her words remind us that liberty is not simply about personal rights, but also about our collective responsibility towards others. I found her thoughts to be deeply inspiring. Here's theater practitioner and social justice advocate, Catherine Hannah Schrock. Catherine, thanks for coming to join us.
3: Appreciate you all having me on on this podcast and taking an interest in my work.
0: Yes, absolutely. So this episode is about the Liberty Tree. So many things have this word liberty, and we think what we know what the word liberty means. And Mm -hmm. it is something that our whole country struggles with. It's something I know I struggle with on an individual level. And you're developing a theatrical piece around liberation can you tell us a bit about that? And can you tell us about your theater company, Imagine Brave Spaces?
3: <laughs> yeah, when I when I think about what I'm hoping to do in the world, I think in the simplest and sort of maybe in a poetic way, speaking as a poet for the moment, I think that I'm committed to theater for liberation. So I feel very attached to the word. And I hope for Imagine to be a, a, a space that creates The conditions for liberation, that's actually a a quote that I heard from nearby star, who is a spiritualist and intellect speaker, wonderful, wonderful person to learn from. But she said, we must create the conditions for liberation. And that I think is the question that I am deeply curious about. What are the conditions for liberation and how can I as a theater artist create those conditions? And of course, the question I think that comes before that is like, what is liberation? What is it? What does liberation look like? I'm always on a journey. I'm looking to discover, you know, more of what that means, but I can say for now that to be liberated is to be connected, to feel a part like you are a part of something, to be at home in oneself, to be at home with others. I also think that liberation is about overcoming injustice, that we have we are past the inequities, that we are in equity and in. Justice, you know, and, um, and mercy, and all the language that comes when things are in place. And I think that's the liberation that I feel I'm, I'm so interested in. And this work that I've been contemplating and, and hoping to develop is um, in collaboration actually with Jamie Roach, who is the co founder of the Give Love Project. But we have, we've been dreaming about creating a playback theater program with the theme of liberation we're interested in inciting stories about liberation asking the question what makes you feel free or if you don't feel free you know what is your vision for freedom what might freedom look like and then yeah i just i just feel so connected to the gift as theater people the gift that we have to then be able to play that story back so perhaps your story of liberation looks like this and we might offer a song, a movement, a short scene, and hope that it connects with them. And I believe that it actually will connect us together, that I become a part of your story of liberation. And you become a part of my liberation um, reminds me of the, um, the quote also by Lila Watson. She says, if you've come to help me, then um, you're wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, so the, the the binding together of liberation, then let's work together. Yeah, that's sort of decentralized, you know, decolonized uh, way of being. It's beautiful, Catherine. And it's deeply needed.
0: If you don't mind sharing, how were you called to mm. to this
3: specifics? Why now? Yeah, yeah. I I think that our artistry is um, in some ways kind of (laughs) otherworldly, spiritual, you know, I'll say. And I don't think that institutions always afford us the ability to speak on spiritual terms. And I don't mean religious. I mean about like love and connection and also operating from instinct and being non-stagnant and being fluid, working from the heart that's what I think I mean and and I, I deeply believe that culture is always changing and that we have the ability to change culture and so we have to be in this limber place we have to be responsive we have to be listeners so that's what called me to imagine you know we named it imagine um, there's an old, phrase that has sort of never left me. I actually learned it from a, a theologian named Walter Brueggemann. And he says that the role of the prophet is essential in calling people and calling society into something better, into more, you know, that we 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 become tired or sedated and we forget that there's more, there's more growth, there's more progress. And so I think as artists and culture workers, that we, we can evoke that prophetic voice, you know, that we can be that. And, and what that looks like is energizing our audiences, bringing joy. It also looks like offering a critique to say, Mm-mm, that's not good enough. So it's both, it's this criticizing and energizing and let's keep imagining Let's imagine the beloved community as it it was meant to be, as it can be. And then when we can imagine it, then we can build it. So I think that's where like my activism comes in. Like this is about activism. It's about work. It's about, you know, what is the, the conditions of liberation? So Catherine, you wrote a poem about imagine. What were you hoping to convey with these words? So I started the company. Uh, with my partner just last summer. And And so we're in this birthing stage of trying to figure out who we are and who we're trying to be, who we're becoming. I think we're always becoming. I love the language of becoming. So I don't plan to arrive at who we are. And so through this spoken word piece, I, that was the question on my mind and what I was trying to convey. The challenge about talking about liberation is that it is, it is the not yet, <laughs> you know, it is, the, it is the thing we hope for. It is the thing we long for. It is the thing we imagine. And so what do I do with my rage <laughs> on some days? What do I do with my grief? What do I do with my growing physical anxiety, you know, at, on some days? That's the challenge, I think, of talking about liberation. And so I also wanted to convey that to be honest, I think I wanted to convey the complexities that it's not just this, sometimes there can be this almost like easy answer of like, but we are all beloved community. And it's like, that is, that is what we claim to be our rightful. That's our birthright. (laughs) That's our rightful place together with all creatures, including trees, Mm -hmm. but it is not yet, but there is oppression. There are people who are, who at times are, Actively pursuing to choke out liberation, to even harm humanity and the earth. And so I I think I, I wanted to capture something that is showing that complexity and even some of that lament. I don't think any of us were truly
0: prepared to deal with grief or anxiety or rage or any of that in the last couple of years. So giving space in the first place, for grief, rage, lamentation, without Mm -hmm. knowing where it will go, and how long that journey will take. I think it's a very brave act. Would you, Catherine, share this piece with us?
3: Yes, gladly. And thank you for for having me again. Thank you for being uh, so generous in this conversation. let's just imagine that we wake up each day to center human dignity insisting that each person is part of me and when we encounter resistance we pause we breathe we may even rage or grieve then we press on in curiosity love labors then refuses to be enemies we build beloved community imagine that we seek to understand rather than be understood we get to know our neighbor say hello to a stranger and when the policy doesn't serve us we pause we breathe we may even rage or grieve then we rework it people first we deserve it imagine that we release ourselves from the need to be perfect. Slow down, take breaks, dance to cope. We fight with our hope. Imagine play as purpose, mercy as justice. Imagine forgiveness, even if they don't deserve this, even if we don't deserve this. Imagine us, you and me, that tree, here and now this gathering is no mistake awake to this particular time and space to this cosmos universe planets and galaxies matter and energy where we are here and now wow we are here and now say it with me we are here And now, how marvelous. To say it is a coincidence might be a convenience or a missed chance. Go on and imagine. Each day, step outside, behold the sun, feel the wind wrap around you. We are one, and we're going to be all right. Each one of us carries the light. Look within. Imagine.
0: On this Thanksgiving weekend, we acknowledge that this episode was recorded in Massachusetts. On the unceded territory of the Wabanaki Confederacy, Penacook, Massachusett, and Pawtucket people, as well as in New York on the land of the Lenape Tribes, and San Diego on the lands of the Kumeyaay, we gratefully acknowledge the Native peoples on whose ancestral homelands we gather, as well as the diverse and vibrant Native communities who make their home here today. We are also so grateful for you, Tree Speechers. Thank you for listening to Tree Speech today.